Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And by the way, there was a lot of disagreement at times. And it really, I mean, they about got punched out after closing. <laughs> I did. Uh, but I just did it. <laughs> Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. And I just want to call out our producer, Raz, who is at swim class right now for yes, his uh, with son. His, Not with for his him. son. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. He, he works no matter where he is. He can, he can make it happen. He's a real multitasker. That's right. That's right. <laughs> how are you, Steve? I am very good. I, I wanted to say I'm excited. I was talking to Raz about this. I'm getting my second vaccine shot this week, so uh, I'll be able to rejoin society, I think. Right. I, I guess. I don't know. I um, April 6th is when I get my first one. So I'm pumped. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's exciting. Now, Although I mean, I've court- got I've got I'm, now that means I've only got now the clock is running for me to lose my sort of uh, quarantine LBs. <laughs> right, right. <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> so, kind of left that to the last minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's something we're all going to have to live yeah, with. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, things going back to normal. Good thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. Although, uh, you know, for for uh, where our guest is from and basically Georgia, too. I mean, I, they, they've been living like things are normal uh, all along. Right. Down in Florida. <laughs> it is. It is absurd. I mean, just absolutely. What Corona. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. Um well, so we should just go ahead and introduce everybody to our guests. We have today, with us today an Orlando trial lawyer. He is awesome. We're so excited to have him on, Rich Newsom. He's a senior partner at Newsom Melton Law Firm, and you can look him up at newsomlaw.com. That's N-E-W-S-O-M-E law.com. Rich, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show and, uh, you know, just, uh, it's really an honor to be here. Well, we are so excited to have you on and I've, I've got to say, Steve, he's definitely got to be what top three, as far as, uh, the sound, the sound setup oh, yeah. for the yeah, podcast. Exactly. Guests. You know, yeah, he's, he's definitely, uh, and, and he's, he's dressed, he's dressed better than you and I are. Uh, so he's, he's looking good for the camera. He's looking good. You know, I mean, he sounds good. He is uh, all around professional. Yeah. Um, if we ever use like just a quick clip of this video, Raz, I'm going to need you to like <laughs> Photoshop in, a um, like a suit, suit yeah, like, over my sweatshirt. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so Steve and I know a lot about rich, but let's tell our listeners, for those of you who don't know a lot about Rich, he has got a very cool background um, that starts out with him going to um, Florida State undergrad and University of Florida um, for law school. And it only gets weirder from there. Um, Rich worked as a federal prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is just so cool. I think I think if you've only done civil stuff, you just find the idea of, of, you know, the criminal stuff and prosecution, just really interesting. Well, um, and, and, you know, I should say this, Yvonne. So in the Southern district in Georgia, at least with what they used to do, they don't really do it as much anymore, but uh, you get appointed to do federal defense cases against us attorneys. So, so I've actually had a few federal criminal cases. I had a couple of bank robberies, a couple of possession, uh, uh, gun charges, uh, you know, so, uh, where I, where I've gone up against the, uh, the U S attorney and I'm definitely, uh, outgunned because I do no criminal law. And, uh, and the way we used to do it is there was a, a very well-known criminal defense lawyer here in Savannah 
named Terry Jackson. And the first phone call you make when you get appointed on one of these cases is to call up Terry and say, Terry, what are all the motions I have to file? And he'll, he'll send you a stack of motions. And that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have not been appointed in a criminal case, although there is a judge in the Atlanta area who I won't specifically call out, who is always saying he's going to appoint me on some public urination cases so that I get more trial <laughs> I think, experience. I think I could guess who that judge is. just based <laughs> <on that. laughs> Anyway, but it hasn't happened yet. Anyway, um, <laughs> enough about that. Um, so Rich has that background. But then in addition to that, Rich worked on the dark side. He worked for a large yes. product liability defense firm in Orlando. Um, and he was representing manufacturers. And in the course of that, I think he identified what he, what he really wanted to do. And he's been, um, working for plaintiffs ever since. Um, but Rich, can you just, can you tell, what can you tell us about that experience and why it <laughs> no, made you want to switch? <laughs> oh my goodness. Indeed, it was, indeed. uh, so yeah, I just left the U S attorney's office, still had student loans, credit card debts. My wife wanted to quit her job. We we're pregnant with the first kid trying to build a house and so, you know, got this job and thought, hey, this is pretty neat. I get to make a raise and um, was taking the deposition of a family that had lost a two-year-old in a defective seatbelt case. Oh. And uh, I called her on the way home. I'm like, I just can't do this anymore. And to her credit, she's like, okay, you know, whatever. So I took a huge cut in pay and joined a small plaintiff's firm uh, that did some products liability work. And uh, yeah, been doing it ever since. God, so that was my great. story. It was, yeah. Uh, well, never looked back. We're glad to have you on the, on the force of, of good instead of evil. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a long, that was a long time ago too. So. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, so you've been, you've been working for plaintiffs for more than 25 years, focusing yep. on people with, with really catastrophic fatal injuries. Um, you've been very active in leadership stuff. I'm kind of like overwhelmed by this past president of the Orlando federal bar association, the Florida justice association, past board of governors for AAJ, past president of the Central Florida Trial Lawyers Association, uh, goes on. Um, you're also in 2016, you were named the Orlando Personal Injury Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers and received uh, from the AAJ, received the Stephen C. Sharp Public Service Award, which is a huge deal in recognition of, some, of a work you did for your client um, who was injured by a Takata airbag. Um, but in addition to all that and in, in all the free time that you have, um, <laughs> yeah. Rich has done something extra cool to give back to um, the, the community and teach others. And he is a, he is a founding faculty member of Trial School. Um, it's a not-for-profit not organization um, that helps um, lawyers collaborate about trial advocacy. Rich, why don't you tell us a little bit more about, about what trial school does? Yeah. So it, you know, it started Mel Orchard and I, Mel's this great, amazing lawyer who I had a chance to get to know several years ago. And we were having a conversation about the different ways of picking juries. And it was kind of like a, a you know, a friendly argument. And he's like, no, nah, you got to strikes for cause are terrible. It's about building the tribe. I'm like, no, nah, man, here in Florida, it's all about getting them off for cause. Right. And so he convinced me after that conversation to go to the Spence College, which I'd heard about for years. It's just such a commitment. It's three weeks. So I go out to Wyoming. Mel's going to be on the faculty. So I, I went and it was the most amazing thing because it took uh, the blinders off about a completely different way of not only jury selection, but trying cases. So after that, um, a group of us got together. It was 
Joey Lowe, Mel Orchard, and then Keith Mitnick and Alex Alvarez and a group of other lawyers. We had maybe 20 lawyers who came, Johnny Carpenter from California. And we started mashing up methods specifically on jury selection to try to see, you know, first of all, I mean, I came back and I told Mitnick about this experience. Keith Mitnick's here in Orlando. He's a good friend. Right. He's a great lawyer. Uh, and I told him about this thing. He said, ah, that's bullshit. I'm like, well, come on. No, you can't. <laughs> it's really not. So we, we did this series of focus groups and we called it a laboratory. And it was really eye-opening, I think, for some of us. So that was the birth of trial school. We just called it the trial school. We're going to go to school and we're going to learn how to do this. So yeah. um, it's really been a collaborative effort by a group of lawyers across the country. The lawyers who were there, it's grown uh, to, to have an amazing uh, faculty. We have you know 4,000 members. All you got to do is sign up and basically swear that you're a plaintiff lawyer and you don't represent the dark side. <laughs> and so it's been really great because it's learned uh, or it's helped uh, teach me. And I think others have learned how to better try cases. And what we've discovered is through this collaboration, it's not just how can we do what we've called it kind of the hybrid voir dire. Uh, Joey Lowe now, you know, is a big fan of this thing that we kind of learned together. Uh, but, but other methods, other, other little secret sauce, tricks, tidbits, methods that we've pulled together. I've learned so much and I think others have as well, that it's really changed the way I try cases. And I think it's been really great for my clients. Well, tell people how they can, uh, how they can find trial school if they're interested in joining. Yeah. So, so if you're a lawyer who only represents human beings, it's, you, you can't do any defense uh, or if you're a criminal defense lawyer, you're welcome to. We're starting more programs for criminal defense uh, bar. But just visit trialschool.org and you can, there's a place to sign up. You fill out an application. You do need some recommendations. We just want to make sure we can check on you. If you have a couple local plaintiff lawyers who you know or criminal defense lawyers, that's all. It's a very simple process. It's also completely free. We've been very fortunate to have some really great sponsors who have, who have supported this whole effort. And so there's a great library of information. We have live, live stream events that you can attend for free. And the, the website itself, trialschool.org, is designed so that you can really quickly, in the heat of battle, figure out, hey, man, I got to do an opening in a, a brain injury case. Well, you can ring up John Gomez and watch him give one. There's a transcript. There's outlines. And so it's all designed to be used, first of all, for free by the lawyers who really need it, who represent people, but also in a really easy to use accessible formats that you don't have to read a 300 page book to get to the point. And so that's it. So it's always going to be free. And uh, we're gonna, once we start post COVID, hopefully having retreats again, we're going to do amazing workshops and hopefully continue to move the needle and helping us all get better. That's, That's awesome. Great. Yeah. I, I think especially for, for new or newer lawyers or even, even not um, newer lawyers necessarily, but you know, when you're trying a case, the stakes are just always so high. Absolutely. And you just, to be able to learn from other people's trial experience and what they've done in trials is so invaluable because we've, we've talked about when you focus group cases and stuff, it's just different. The focus group knows the stakes are different. It's right. just, it's just yeah. different. So to be able to learn from such a, a tremendous group um, trial strategy, that is awesome. What a great idea. Well, and we yeah. also have a great listserv. You got you know, these amazing faculty members, Jim Perdue Sr., who is, of course, this legendary, you know, member of the inner circle. He wrote the book, probably one of the most famous, I think, meaningful trial books called Who Will Speak for the Victim. Uh, he literally, like two weeks ago, posted a manuscript that he had written on storytelling for lawyers for free. 
on the listserv. I mean, those kind of resources, you know, you ask a question, you'll have, you know, Mark Mandel answer. It's just, yeah, yeah. that's so awesome. It's been really kind of cool. I, I am interested to hear more about your uh, hybrid voir dire because, you know, we, we, you know, it, it, we, try to uh, do a, almost a different style of voir dire, depending on what type of venue you're going into. Yes, if we're going absolutely. into a, mm-hmm. a very conservative venue, then we, we are looking for strikes for cause. I mean, we try to get people, you know, talking as much as possible and we want to hear the negative. Uh, but then if you're going into what, you know, I would call a more plain and friendly venue, uh, then you're really kind of looking more for a, a protection side, you know, that, you know, and, and, you know, building more of a sort of a commitment, but um I mean, do you, is, does this uh, hybrid approach, I, mean, I assume it varies depending on what type of venue you're walking into and. Um, well, well, the concepts behind it don't, but the venue determines, for example, some, some jurisdictions don't have, I mean, every, you strike everyone for cause because they're all going to hate your case. Right. I mean, that's right. actually yeah. where, what's ironic is the tribe building method that Jerry Spence developed in was, was created in Wyoming, maybe the, the most red state in the country. Where, where the people on the Venari are super conservative. And so yeah. that's where that method was born. You know, here in Florida, actually, the, what, the Causes King method was actually developed by a guy named Jay Burke, who's mm-hmm. one of the most famous jury consultants. Jay is retired now, but he created this Causes King method. And it was really an algorithmic approach to getting people to basically admit that they cannot be completely fair and unbiased. And that was created in South Florida which right. is a relatively <laughs> liberal Venari. So you wouldn't necessarily, uh, I think, tailor it to the conservative versus liberal area of the jurisdiction. It's more, how long is the court going to give you? Well, there are methods for tr- doing a voir dire very, very quickly if you have to. Yeah. And we yeah. have that plugged in. Um, what does the jurisdiction say about how long you go? I mean, in federal court, for example, maybe you get 10 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you do there? Or up in Mass, uh, where is it? Gosh, Maine, I think. They don't allow any voir dire. And so it, to your point, it's it's very driven by jurisdiction, but the principles are the same. And the other thing is too, some people may not be comfortable with all the different methods. And that's why one of the things at trial school, we all believe, I think, fervently is that there are more than one good way to try a case, uh, be it voir dire, uh, be it opening statements. For example, in opening statements, I mean, you've got you know, the Mark Lanier metaphor method or the uh, Mark Mandel uh, case framing or the Rick Friedman uh, rules of the road. Those are all almost, I mean, very, very different methods, uh, but, but all equally effective. And so we kind of, I think, subscribe to the idea that, that you can study these various methods. And if we curate it and present it, let everyone decide what works best for them and in their jurisdiction. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's great. I think and let's give it away for free because that's one of the other things. If it's just plaintiff lawyers only, and it's always for free, the, the, the great lawyers, you know, the legends around the country have been just incredibly willing to share because it's for the good of the order. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so let's talk about the the case that we're here to talk about that you tried, um, because we can talk about some of how some of these methods really applied and, mm-hmm. and, and how you approached this case. Um, so let's tell our listeners a little bit about it. So the case was basically on the uh, behalf of the state of Abigail Dougherty, who she was co-represented by her parents versus WCA of Florida. This is shoot. I forgot. Steve, how do you pronounce wait, wait, it? Wait, oh, 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 Alachua. Alachua. Alachua County. Yeah. Alachua County, Florida. Um, it's an October 2018 verdict. So 
we're going to talk a little bit about what happened and then we're going to let um, Rich help us fill in the details and, and really dig into this. But on October 28th, 2016, Abigail, um, she was about 20 years old. Sounds like a really tremendous person. We'll talk about yeah, this later. Just an amazing young woman. Yeah, just not what I was like at 20, really. Yeah, like exactly. I, just, <laughs> I don't feel like I was doing quite such admirable things, but right. she was heavily involved in doing volunteer work with in connection with the food pantry. Um, she was teaching yoga at school, doing all kinds of great stuff. She was on the, sounds like the, the city beautification committee. Um, but she was, uh, and she was a student at University of Florida. And she was riding her bike in the dedicated um, bike lane near 17th Street and University Avenue in Gainesville, Florida. Pretty um, busy intersection for those who are unfamiliar. Um, and meanwhile, I mean, our listeners know something bad happened. Uh, a, a Waste Corporation of America, that's the WCA reference, garbage truck was uh, being driven next to her by a, going the same direction by a, a very experienced truck driver, about a 15-year truck driver. And he was making a right turn where Abigail was sort of biking, was planning to cross the intersection through the crosswalk. And uh, he made that right turn, did not see Abigail. Um, and his his truck, this this giant truck, 2,000 two tons, is that right? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a garbage truck. 40,000 yeah. 40, 40, pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, massive, massive truck um, strikes the rear tire of Abigail's bike in the crosswalk. So she and Abigail and her bicycle were pulled under the truck, and, and Abigail was killed. Um, the defense in this case, and we'll talk about this more. So I don't want to talk, too, I don't want to talk too much about it, but. Um, was definitely to blame Abigail and to um, blame it on the fact that she had not slept a lot and that she had consumed alcohol and some cocaine the night before. But Rich was able to convince the jury in this case that that um, Waste Corporation of America was responsible for the driver's actions in this case, um, including the, the the things, the procedures he failed to do, um, which we're going to talk about. And uh, the jury assigned 80% of the blame of, of Abigail's death to WCA and awarded a sum of $12.5 million for each of Abigail's parents. Um, so that amounted to a total of $25 million, which is tremendous in itself, but also, as we'll talk about, the jury made a finding um, they awarded, they allocated 20% of the fault to Abigail, but they actually made a specific finding on the verdict form that Abigail was not impaired, not under the, un, the influence at the time of the wreck, which I think has to be a really significant achievement as well. Um, so total verdict of $25 million, just a great job, Rich. There's so much to talk about, but um, one of the things we were talking about before we were we were recording that I really hope you can share perspective on, especially for our a lot of our listeners who haven't done this before, is that you were brought into this case fairly close to the trial to help pick the jury and try the case. And so whether it comes to this case specifically, but I guess also in general, what do you do in that situation? How do you approach it and get your arms around everything? Well, you know, the good news is the lawyers who called me were great lawyers, um, uh, a firm down in Fort Myers, Florida, great, great guys were very close with this family and they had worked the case up, had done a smart job, had hired the right experts. So the legwork had been done. Um, and I think as I was telling you guys, I, I got involved about 10 days out. It was as a result of some of the work we had done with trial school. 
where we were really talking about this new method. And there's some other pieces to the the hybrid method too that we could go into in a whole, that's a whole day of conversation. But I think we had really sort of through this collaboration come up with a really good way of picking a jury. And because in this case, it was so, so um, inflammatory. Uh, they had done some focus group works and the defense was basically, look, she was drunk, she was high, and she literally was driving 16 miles an hour on her bike late for class in the little area between the curb and where this garbage truck was, the garbage truck was turning right and he had a signal and she blew by him and ran right out in front of him as he was making the turn. That was the defense. And they're like, how are we responsible for that? And the focus groups are like, yeah. I mean, and so <laughs> it was, there was a lot of what Spence calls danger points on this. And, and so we were talking about, it was literally, I was, it was a Saturday afternoon and, and these, these good guys from Fort Myers who had worked at the case called and said, okay, how does the voir dire work? And I'd send them an outline and send them some transcripts of some other cases and was walking it, walking them through it. And uh, so, well, look, you know, call me anytime I'm here. And so they called me back on Monday and said, well, would you mind just picking the jury? And I, I do that for firms, um, for friends and uh, then I said, well, would you also get involved in helping to try the case? And so that was about 10 days out. And so they sent me the depositions. Uh, they sent me the pleadings. And that's how I got involved. Yeah. Wow. That just, I, I just, I so admire that because I just feel like I would be so stressed out. I mean, we do it sometimes, but yeah. I don't think it's ever been 10 days before. And every no, they, time I get very <clears throat> overwhelmed. The, mo the most I can think of was a case that Jeff and I tried where we uh, came in about three and a half months before trial, but that, yeah. you know, that was enough time. It was a medical malpractice case. And, you know, so we had to get up to speed on the medicine and everything, but that, uh, but it is interesting coming into another firm's work where they've done all the depositions. And so you didn't get to control you know, how the questions came out or what happened with uh, the expert witnesses or any of that, you kind of just got to go with what's, what's there. So, right. um, it, well, and they had done a good job. They had hired good experts. You know, yeah. they had done a thorough job. It was a smart firm and um, really, really good, good human beings. And so, you know, they were on track. They just, you know, they just asked me to come in and try it with them, which ended up being a lot of fun. And I think we did a good job together. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's gonna get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. 
Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. As I was reading the case, and I, I, I mean, I understand, you know, the, this issue about the, the cocaine and the... Um, and the alcohol that they wanted to get that into evidence. I, I did have a question about how that came in because it sounded like from your closing that the only evidence was is that her blood alcohol level was zero. So I'm like, well, why, why would you be talking about alcohol at all if you're showing zero? But, um, but um, you, you know, I, as I was reading the facts, as you were laying them out, I'm kind of like, well, why didn't the defense just settle this case? I mean, this seems like a case that they should, never should have taken to trial. But I mean, obviously, they had a much different perspective on oh, it. And, um, and, well, and there were things that happened at trial. So yeah, well, they had a toxicologist um, who basically testified that, um, you know, first of all, she had her friend, she had been out till three in the morning, uh, probably didn't get to bed till four or five. She had, you know, an early class. She'd been drinking all night. She had uh, done cocaine and they were arguing she'd even bumped cocaine that morning. And they had a toxicologist who was saying that uh, a really, really good toxicologist. And the whole defense was she was drunk and high and uh, ran out in front of a garbage truck. That was the defense. And all that came right. in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so just, I, I won't belabor this point, but so it, it, it sounded like that, that the, uh, um, the medical examiner who did the autopsy came up with a 0, 0.0 blood alcohol level. And I mean, so how, how did that come into evidence? Uh, if, if, if that's what the, you know, uh, pathologist is, is saying, who's done the medical exam. Yeah. For some reason, you know, it's been a couple of years. I, I thought, it had to do something with, I mean, the, the roommate stories came in and the kids right. she was with, all of that came in. They had dressed up like Harry Potter and had gone out of the bars. I don't even, I think it was it, actually. It had been Halloween or something like that. Yeah, right? it, yeah. it was her birthday. Uh, and I think she had turned 21. And so they were admittedly, you know, drinking it up. And I don't remember the specifics of why we had some room to argue because of the way, you know, she, she had of course passed away and it was after the fact, you know, I don't remember the specifics of why, but it was, it was, I mean, on, on, on the overall facts, the reason why the defense didn't settle the case, they offered, you know, some peanuts before because their defense was supported by the facts that she had been heavily intoxicated. She was exhausted and there was absolutely cocaine in her system. Yeah. And I think it had to do with the half-life of the cocaine. And again, I'm, I'm going back, you know, two and a half years. Right. Uh, I think that um, the toxicologist wanted to put it all on her, but there were some, there were some technical problems with the testing and the sampling and the half-life of the cocaine that he just couldn't give it a firm. So I think that's where it came down. He couldn't say, with a preponderance, you know, that, that she was intoxicated and shouldn't have been, but all of the facts, when you heard sort of the whole story of what had happened that right. night and the fact that there was absolutely cocaine in her system at the time, she had, you know, there had been a lot of partying. And then when you combine it with the fact of, it was literally, she was going, you know, 14 to 16 miles an hour on her bike late for class while this guy's turning right. And she cuts out in front of him. 
And so it was just all like, look, man, yeah. we we're not at fault here. We didn't do anything wrong. Well, and, and, and I didn't see a whole lot of reference to that in the, um, in, in the opening and closing, but I mean, I, what was the speed limit of the, of the roadway? Uh, well, it was a cross section. So the, the, the dump truck was turning right on university Avenue, which is this very busy, you know, four or five lane, six lane street in the middle that goes right through the heart of the university of Florida. And it was a side street. So he was kind of slowing down for this light. And when the light turned, he was making a, making a turn to the right. And so I, I, I don't remember, but presumably okay. the, the speed limit on that side street was, you know, 25 miles an hour or something. Okay. But the point is she was, you know, literally cutting between this garbage truck and the curb on her bike, you know, as he is, you know, allegedly had his turn signals on. Right. So. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it, so we've actually had a couple of other, I mean, tragically, um, cases on the show, which was bicycles being run over by truck drivers uh, yep. as making right turns. They've, uh, mm -hmm. I think the, the other cases were the same. It was always a bicycle going straight or trying to turn right and then a truck running over them as they make a right, right turn. And, and I, I feel like, you know, maybe not everybody understands and I'm not sure all drivers do that, uh, you know, that a bicycle lane is a lane like any other and they have the right of way. Um, right. And so if she's, driving in her lane. Well, um, she really wasn't seeing that. Okay. That, that right. was the problem. Well, then that, that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the defense was <laughs> yeah. that she, if she wanted to be in the road, she should be acting like a motorist and should have stayed in back of the dump truck and okay. waited. And instead she was cutting it. You know, she was kind of, you know, literally in about a three foot space between the curb and the dump truck. She was literally passing him on his right. And now she was in the crosswalk when she got hit, but it was, you know, she was going 16 miles an hour. Right. Okay. So the argument was, how could this guy have seen her? You know, the reason she was doing this was because she was still intoxicated and was late for class. Okay. Okay. And Rich, you had um, the, I, I was looking at the slides from the closing and you oh, had- wow. You guys dug deep on oh, yeah. this. Oh yeah. We, 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 I mean- If the, you send it to us, we'll, we'll look at right. it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we should say is that there was um, several videos of this um, mm -hmm. from uh, surrounding businesses and from the truck itself. So, yep. I mean, that all... Uh, was very helpful. Right. Yeah. You had video. And, and that was one of the things I was going to ask you about was the, to the extent you remember, there were these stills from the closing that kind of show where, um, where Abigail was on her bike next right. to the truck. And they're like the highest definition surveillance video I've ever seen. Where, where was that video from? Yeah. So, so, um, the firm that had this hired a guy named Brian Buckner, who's a reconstruction guy. He's an engineer and Buckner did a really good job. He got on the ground relatively soon. He did a survey fixed station. He did a 3d model and he literally went and knocked on doors. And one of the things that Buckner proved in that case is how much video there is today. Mm -hmm. Just about any intersection, especially, you know, if it's in some somewhat urban area, there's video cameras everywhere. And I think that there was a little restaurant there on the corner that had a security camera. And that's where the best video came from. And, and really, a lot of that had to do. And that was one of the issues that uh, we got into that, that, that the sort of the two, the defense of the plaintiffs before I got involved were really focused on. Did this guy have his turn signal on? You know, and that's what kind of what. Um, had been, I think the sort of the subject of much debate, but in the end, I was kind of like, it, it doesn't really matter. It just doesn't. Right. Right. And so we kind of took that out of the case and it was a big point of contention. I think that's one of the things that 
we as trial lawyers do a lot is we, we run down sort of these rabbit holes and we litigate over something that we think is so important, but that sometimes isn't. And, you know, especially as plaintiffs, we should always try to simplify the case. Right. And I think it was easy for me. I'm coming in at the last minute. It's like, hey, man, we don't even need this. And by the way, there was a lot of disagreement at times. And it really, I mean, they I about got punched out after closing. <laughs> I did, um, but I just did it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, so especially me coming in late, it's easy to sort of see the big picture. And that was something that we largely stopped fighting about. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and looking at the video and it seems like it would, it was so huge in this case. And, and maybe this was because you the way you had kind of structured the, the case is already cooking in, th in my brain by the time that I look at the slides, but you look at where she is on her bike next to this giant truck. And it mm -hmm. just, it just looks so crazy to begin with. And then you had a lot of slides of pictures of the intersections at other times where you've got somebody on a bike in that same area where she was next to a vehicle that's in there in the lane. And so it really kind of helps you see what's going on. And for our for our listeners who don't get to see that and can't see that all these really helpful motions that I'm making with my hands, <laughs> it really is when you see that video and you hear the things that you were saying in closing, Rich, it really did make sense that, that to me that like, yeah, the turn signal doesn't matter because there are so many other things yeah. that you pointed out that were at least the way you had explained it seemed very problematic about what the truck driver had done, the way he had taken that turn, right. um, you know, kind of tight to the curb and Sp apparently sped up on a yellow light, yeah. right. Speeding up on a yellow light. So can you talk a little bit about how y'all were able to the, the other sort of violations or, or, you know, rule violations <clears throat> or, or bad practices that were out there separate from this whole turd signal issue and whether she was riding a bike where she should have been riding a bike. Yeah. So, you know, what happens so many times, I think in cases, uh, and you know, the defense sort of gets into their myopic lane of looking at liability a certain way. And to them, it was, you know, this really sexy defense argument of cocaine and alcohol that no question was all coming into evidence. They had a great expert and we really didn't. And this expert, you could feel it viscerally. He wanted to say that, and he just didn't have quite enough, but it was patently clear to the, to the jury that he wanted to blame her. Um, you, you, she was going 16 miles an hour. So they're like, there's no way we just, this is ridiculous. Um, the, the plaintiffs on the other hand, so while we can see in the video, it looks like he's got his, um, you know, it, he hit her in the lane. She was in the bike lane and, and that was kind of their point of view. And so, so to me though, and this is where the big fight at closing became. And to me, I think, that it's so important that we not get into the, our myopic lanes and that we try to look at it as, and it's hard sometimes, but try to look at it as what is the jury going to say? You know, what is your, your partner, you know, when you go home and run the facts by them, what are they going to say? What is this? And sometimes focus groups help with that, but I think you really have to look inside and be brutally honest with yourself. And to me, it was clear that there was comparative fault. It was the reason this happened tragically yeah. because of two different people. And so if you're willing to do that and the fight got in my co-counsel who brought me in, there's no way in hell they wanted to accept responsibility. It's not our fault. She was in the cross lane. And so, uh, you know, I wanted, if you'll notice, my co-counsel gave the opening, they wanted to right. do the opening. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, here's how we need to play it. And they didn't want to do it. And throughout the trial, they did not want to accept any comparative fault. And so in closing, I just did. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just did. And if you'll, there was this one moment because the, the most compelling defense testimony came from this bicycle expert who said, look, if you're on your bike and you're in the street, you got to own the lane. You got to be in it. You can't go cutting and passing someone on the right. And you can't, it's a violation of the rules. It's not now they violated some rules too, but, um, it, to me, it was, it was strong testimony. We didn't really have anyone to refute it. And so I stood up in closing and said, look, this is after I'd kind of gone over our theory. I said, and, and we had not, you know, my co-counsel wasn't going to do it in opening. There'd been no whiff of it. Uh, but I, I, this is again, I, 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 daggers were coming out of court's eyes when I did <laughs> it. And he literally, I mean, he was, he was super mad at me afterwards. Um, but I just had to do it. And so I said, you know, members of the jury, when experts so-and-so their bicycle expert got on the stand and talked about how she broke the rules too. I paused and I said, that's got the ring of truth to it too. And so because of that, Abigail bears some of the responsibility for her own death. And so members of the jury, this then becomes a case of shared responsibility. And all of a sudden the jury just relaxed and you can see they, you know, they started nodding because I'm going off of code, you know, as Don Keenan calls it, we're on code where, you know, the, the typical thing is for both parties to stay in their myopic lane. Here's the poor jury trying to figure it out. And so when you then do that, when you acknowledge and make the case about shared responsibility, it takes us back to when we were in kindergarten, right? What's the first thing we learned? You got to share your toys. You got to share people who don't share are bad. And so we, you know, you, we've been able to capture the high ground by, by taking, and I, I, my preference, which I argued and wanted to do was to do it an opening statement. And I've got this whole metaphor I use of, you know, share, you know, how do you, how are you going to do that? And I, I did throw it in. I think at closing, I talked about, you know, sharing, uh, coming up with percentages is the jury's job. Obviously we're in a comparative fault state and it's a factor of time and weight, the weight of the evidence and the time that that the person hadn't. And, and the other thing, well, we can talk about it too, but I tied this into the other thing I changed significantly was instead of making about this driver and his bad behavior, I wanted to make it about his company and about how they made him work these ridiculously long shifts because he right. had to finish you know, a hundred and something stops before the end of the day. And he was all by himself. And, and, um, and so instead of making him the victim and the bad guy, we made him the victim too. Right. And, and that was, again, that was another fundamental shift that I think helped change the narrative of the case. And so um, when, when we made it about that, so in other words, for Abigail, it was a five second bad decision that happened with just, you know, she's late for class, but for them, it was a course of conduct, a series of choices that this garbage truck company had made over the years about how they were going to do business. And they chose to go into the university of Florida and have one driver and to put 140 stops before the poor guy could go home before the end of the day. And so when you compare the time, the years that they made the decisions against Abigail, a few seconds, and the weight, why they did it, they did it for money and they just could have hired someone else versus she's just late for class. The relative, and then, then always anchor the percentage, I think. So I, I said, you know, put yeah. 10% on her and they're going to give you more, but you're reasonable. It gives a, it gives a way to do it because you're, 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 you're giving them a way to weigh the comparative fault and it completely changes the tone of the closing. So, I mean, as soon as I said, that's got the ring of truth too, you could just watch the jury relax. And I think that made the huge difference. No, I, I absolutely agree. And we, um, we, we've talked about this on the show before that the first case that we tried, you know, when we started our firm was against Daimler Chrysler and it was a 
break shift interlock where wow, uh, that's a big one. Yeah. A three-year-old girl had been in there and she, oh. uh, while they were washing the car, pulled it, pulled it out of, uh, out of park and rolls down and ends up coming to rest on her and killing her. And when we focus group the case, two weeks before trial, the, the focus group poured us out, said, you know, oh. this, is, this is the parent's fault. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, the parents should have been watching their child closer. So then we made a decision that we're going to have to go in there and just accept that the parents made a mistake. Um, and had, and, and had her say that on the stand. Absolutely. Um, and, it, and, uh, and it, it made it, I, I, I mean, you, you know, we've talked about on this uh, show that, you know, trials are a credibility fight. Yeah. And who, whichever side shows that they're willing to take responsibility and, and is credible about it, has got the upper hand. And not only does it give you, you know, it, it's the ring, it, it is the truth. I mean, so it's powerful. Uh, it's, it's credibility, but it also allows you to point out from the, the other side, from the defendant to say, look, w- you know, our clients are willing to accept some responsibility here. How much is the, how much is the defense willing to accept? Absolutely. And generally yep. they accept nothing. So it, it's a very powerful point. Um, and I, and I will tell you this, that the very next case I tried after that was with some friends of mine up in New Jersey. And in that case, I told them we're going to have to accept some responsibility. And that almost came to fisticuffs because yeah, it, it <laughs> because it's a different it. mindset. <laughs> it's yeah, a complete, exactly. it's not what we're trained. You know, we're trained to be fighters and warriors and but man it makes all the difference yeah I, what happened I, with your case by the way what was your verdict how'd you do uh well the one in uh federal court in the break shift interlock was uh it was a three i think i can't i think it was a 4.5 million dollar verdict for the death of this young girl and and they uh, gave us 49 percent of the fault in georgia if you are 50 percent at fault you lose um nice. so congratulations they, 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 we we told them to give us i think 20 percent. they gave us right up to the edge 49 percent. it was in federal court okay uh, nicely then, done and then the one up in New Jersey, we got a nice, uh, I think that was an 11.2. Uh, nice. And it was, um, and, and they gave our client 28% of the fault, which, uh, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just ends up, um, it, it ends up working out so well for the, I mean, it, what you can argue about the, um, the other side and, and their inability to, to take responsibility for what they've done. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now 
than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. Rich, I, I really liked the, the, how you kind of brought the to the forefront this issue of how many stops he had to make before um, he could go home. And you, you could tell it was working, number one, because the other side kept jumping up every time <laughs> oh, yeah. you were talking about Well, it was never it. an issue in the case. <laughs> yeah. They had never okay. even, they just wanted to make it about this guy, you know, turning too fast. And thank goodness my co-counsel had asked some questions and it was just kind of like a little sideshow, but it was never an issue in the case. Got it. And yeah. so, you know, all of a sudden now I'm making this about WCA's conduct and the defense attorney just was losing his mind. Yeah. yeah. You, you could it, tell it, reading the I, transcript. It, it was funny because I mean, you, and not only he, this guy obviously objected a lot, but he, he objected a, a uh, a whole lot during your closing. But one of the ones I was reading, he he stood up and objected and said, you were arguing. And I'm like thinking, well, this is closing argument. I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to do? You argue. Well, Florida's got some real funky. We've, we've been battered by years of bad decisions on closing arguments. And it's just a real, it's an area that, especially in our jurisdiction, I think probably more than anywhere else in the country now is really fraught with minefields. Okay. So that's just a nice, you know, you make your record and then hopefully you can argue it on appeal. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just like, I've never, I was like in closing argument, that's what it's called. It's called argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but the biggest, the biggest thing is I, I, I turned it, you know, it was about just a simple case of a driver into now we made yeah. it about something completely different. Well, and what I wanted to say was that I, I, I know that had to really resonate with your jury because I immediately thought of this, um, it's either FedEx or UPS, but I won't say which, but this delivery truck that comes through my neighborhood mm. at least once a day. And my neighborhood is just basically just one circle. Like I can see the whole thing and it's behind a gate. And this guy flies around that circle. I mean, he mm. absolutely flies, but most of the people where I live don't really have kids. There aren't kids running around out there. Um, there's some pets, but anyway, I, 
it immediately made me think of whatever kind of time crunch this dude is on, or if he just wants to get home or whatever, but he's absolutely flying in this giant truck through my neighborhood. And you know, everyone that has to resonate with almost everyone. They think about seeing, you know, or we hear the stories at Amazon about how, how quick people have to do, have to do the tasks to like, yeah. get paid and, mm-hmm. and that's um, what it's about. It's not right. about the driver. He's that's right. they're incentivized. And actually I, I think, yeah, I did. I, I started that closing statement with a trailer's college. They teach this, teach this method of using first person and setting scenes. And it's, it's really kind of a weirdo method if you've never been exposed to it. But I did that. I set a scene and so I started literally, I don't know if you remember reading it, but it was a first person yeah. narrative. I, oh, said, it, it, I, I remember that the defense lawyer hated that. Yeah, thing. exactly. Oh gosh. He lost his mind. <laughs> yeah. So it was, yeah. So I started with first person soliloquy of the driver um, you know, talking about how he had to get up at five in the morning and it's still dark. And I set the scene and set up the chairs, you know, as if they were the, the, the garbage truck. And he's, you know, I'm acting his out and I am delivering his soliloquy and his narrative and about what I'm going through and went through the whole thing. And yeah, he just, he just did not like that one bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and I, I thought it was extremely effective. I mean, because you know, you, you went through all of the testimony and sort of laid down all the agreement about the violations they had made. And by the time you're done, I'm looking at it, you had a list of nine things that they had violated their own policies yeah. and, and that they agreed with. Um, so it, it's, it was extremely powerful. It was yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny would, how how differently we think about that case, Steve. Well, cause, and, and we, we are cheating because we're looking at it after the end result. Right, we're like, it's exactly. $25 million verdict. Of course they should have said it. We're like, what problems right. in the case? Yeah, no, they were, they, they threw a little bit of money at it, but it was all about the alcohol yeah. and the cocaine and 16 miles an hour breaking the rules. You know, they made it a rules of the road case too. Yeah. Which Did is, you... Um, did you get to talk to the jury after this case, Rich? No, mm-mm. no. And in Florida, again, we've gotten so tight on what you can't do. I mean, we literally walk a tightrope. Unless the jury contacts you, you're not allowed to call. Them. I wish I could have. Yeah, and, and I, you're well, not allowed to stand out after uh, outside the courthouse <laughs> afterwards. And if they walk up to you, which you know, right, right, right. I should yeah. have, but I did not. <laughs> well, now, I in this just... case, I really, I really also believe because of the focus group we had done. There's a great. Um, jury consultant named Harvey Moore that they had actually used in this case. And Harvey's got a sophisticated method and there was just, it was just a dangerous case. And um, I, I believed, and which is why they called me initially that, that the jury selection was everything here. And I was able to use that hybrid uh, trial school of Wadir and uh, it was really, really effective. You know, that was the other thing she didn't give us very much time either. It was really, you know, I I like to take, you know, hours. Oh yeah. Okay. Talk, talk us through the voir dire a little bit. I mean, especially how you hit the the cocaine and alcohol issue, you know, of, of your, your client. Yeah. So you just, you just hit it. I mean, so, um, the, the, the basics the, at a very, very high level, um, it is the, this hybrid voir dire is, is a combination between trialers college method, which summed up is basically reflective listening uh, and getting the jury to talk to each other. And there's methods for that. Joey Lowe is phenomenal. He's given talks about it. Um, and, and trying to then get that conversation to ask people whether they can keep an open mind, but still you're bringing up the danger points and, and asking them to talk about it and what they're going to do with it. Then the, on the other side of, of sort of the, the spectrum is the Jay Burke causes King method. 
uh, which, you know, Keith Mitnick talks about in his book, you know, I know the reptile does some of that stuff, but Jay was the founder of, I believe the founder of that method, which is talk about first use an analogy to get, you know, comfortable with, get them comfortable with the idea that it's not a bit, that they're not a fair person. It's just that we're going to, different people have different thoughts and opinions and then just be blunt, talk about the danger point, just yeah. like with Spence. But then the difference is, is after they talk about how they feel, if there are negative thoughts and feelings, just ask them straight up, look, so is it fair to say that we're starting out a little bit behind? And in Florida, those are the magic words and whatever jurisdiction, right. different jurisdictions have magic words, but getting them off for cause. And um, you know, sometimes... I Sometimes, you know, you're just worried to death that you're going to leave some, some, some haters on the jury. Yeah. Uh, and that's always the risk. But I really believe that it, it came down to making sure And we, gosh, we probably got, you know, easily, you know, two thirds of the jury to admit that they would be biased in part because of the cocaine and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if I remember right from, uh, from Jay Burke's method is don't, don't you get, um, them to like basically rate it on a scale between one mm -hmm. and 10 and, and how strong you feel. So if you're like a nine, you feel this stronger an eight and then, and then have yeah. them talk about that, about why they feel that way and get others. I mean, yeah. Jay does that. I don't, I don't, I don't think I had time to do that here. Yeah. So that, that goes it depends back on what they're doing. Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, yeah. you, you've got some jurisdictions where you can go all day or two yeah. days or three days. Um, and, and I think that scoring method works. I'm not, you know, I, I've worked, God, thank God I did. I got to work with Jay Burke and he, you know, worked with me on, on actual cases and I got to learn his method firsthand through him. And I've kind of gotten away from that because I do think you can be equally effective uh, if you get them to have this candid conversation without having to do the scoring. So I kind of miss, right. I take that step out now. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you got time, it's great, especially especially if it's a jury that's not talking to you, you know, sometimes we're right. in the circumstance, they just want to clam up. They're just, you know, sitting there with the arms crossed. And so that, that tool tends to, tends to help you make them number themselves, even if they have no feelings, give it, give it a number. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, there's a, there's a great, I don't know if you've ever um, seen or, 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 or heard anyone talk about the Tom Rhodes method. Tom, Tom Rhodes was an inner circle member who developed what he called um, the, um, uh, speed voir dire, I think is what he called it. Um, but it was a method of using PowerPoint with an actual metric that with a scale right on the, have y'all ever seen that? Have you heard anybody talk about I've, I've seen it. I didn't connect it to, um, to Tom, Tom Rhodes, but I had seen it before. Yeah. And so, I, I've, yes. I've, I've focused cases with Harvey more before. And I remember he's got that scale that, you know, where they're, they go, you know, to one side or the other, depending on how they're feeling. Uh, yeah. as you're asking them questions. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of taken from the Jay Burke. Harvey worked right. with Jay, obviously, a lot, yeah. but um, yeah. or used work with students of Jay. I mean, sort of Harvey had worked with, you know, the great Willie Gary and Steve right. Yard, and they also worked, you know, and and Cersei, and they've all worked with um, with Jay. But but the the Rhodes method, actually, Lisa Blue just gave a great talk for trial school. If anybody wants to see it, just joins free trialschool.org, but where she uses a variant of uh, the Rhodes PowerPoint method, but it's just another way. But yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm getting yeah. far. I, I love this stuff. <laughs> and, and I'll do a shameless plug that Lisa blue is going to be on the show in a, a couple of weeks, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will, I will be sure to tune yeah. in for that. She's <laughs> she always, is, she is. yeah, she's well, fantastic. Good. I, part of the reason I wanted to know if you talked to the jury and it relates to how you were talking to them about these issues is, I mean, this is 
obviously I'm biased and this is why I'll never get on a jury, but I did not like that the defense lawyer, in addition to talking about the alcohol and the cocaine, he made like a comment about how Abigail had been broken up with a couple of weeks before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was kind of shocked at how personal they got in terms of blaming her. And I didn't, I mean, I did not like it. And I, I don't know if that was me coming from the perspective um, of just of being a woman and just feeling like that was just too personal, or if it was just my perspective as a plaintiff's lawyer, but I, I would have been interested in, in what your jury thought about that because I really hated it. Yeah, <laughs> that is very, you know, I, I hadn't thought I'd forgotten about that fact, but you know, he was so, in, I mean, good guy, great lawyer, uh, but was just indignant that here was a case where a plaintiff was at least from his perspective, drunk and on Coke and clearly breaking the rules and ran out and poor in front of this poor guy and where the driver had to have counseling because he was having PTSD. And, and he was just generally indignant and angry that this case is still going and wouldn't settle for the peanuts that, that the carrier had thrown out. It's yeah. just a, you know, in, in, I, I'm, you know, from a defense perspective, it's just a very dangerous road because, you know, I mean, you can go all in on your defense, but it can also just make you look extremely callous and, yeah. um, and really set the jury against you. So I'm, and I'm, you know, I think plaintiff lawyers have the harder job, but there are certain mistakes that defense lawyers can certainly make. And I think going over the top yeah. on your defense can be, can be one of those. Well, I, and I think it goes back to what Rich was saying. And we've talked about this before, Steve, where like, there's this approach that you have throughout the litigation or that makes a really good summary judgment argument, but is not a good argument to make in front of a jury and like how to adjust that. And, and, and I, you know, you do that on both sides, right? I mean, we've, we've worked on cases where we're getting them ready for trial. And there's something that I've been obsessed with in all my briefing and (laughs) been hammering the whole time that nobody cares about anymore. Like (laughs) sometimes you just got to let that stuff go as much work. It's hard, man. It's so hard. (laughs) I think some, you know, sometimes bringing, you know, bringing another lawyer or a jury consultant sometimes can really help with that. Totally. I've made that mistake. I, (laughs) I, golly, you know, I'm, I've learned that lesson, unfortunately, the hard way where I've gotten poured out because of my yeah. myopic brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, yeah. we didn't ask you this, but uh, Alachua, is that where does that fall on the range between conservative? Uh, so Alachua County, I actually grew up there. Uh, that's okay. my hometown. I live yeah. in Orlando now, but Alachua County is where the University of Florida. So you have a very eclectic mix of college student, college professors, which tend to be sort of blue and favorable and rednecks, you know, um, and, and look, Hey, I, I grew up there. I went to, right. you know, but, but it is a very, very deep and different cultural divide, which is why the voir dire matters. Uh, and so I do think we ended up with a really good jury. Uh, I, I, it was one of those where it was nip and tuck because we didn't have a lot of time. And uh, the judge did not want to mistry the case. And she didn't even, she was being so restrictive on, on how she, I like to talk to the whole panel, you know, bring in all 40 or 50, whatever. And we ran out of jurors and she had to bring in more and just was bitter and angry about the whole thing. So it was really precarious, but at the end of the day, we, we came up with a fine panel. Judges never like it when you strike most of their panel. I've had it happen a couple of times and I'm like, sorry, judge, I'm just asking the question. Right, right, right. (laughs) Well, then they'll start, then they'll start using all kinds of things to, 
to preclude you from, from doing it, it can get, I've had it get very ugly before yeah. too. Yeah. It's always a tense day. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And you're We're, doing the math and it's like, oh man, she didn't give me cause on that one. Or, you know, there's a hater and he's got his arms crossed. Yeah. He's not giving yeah. it to you. And Ugh. do I have enough peremptory challenges? And yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember the first, the first trial I ever went to with our firm. And I, so I had never seen, I had never been on a jury before. I had never seen jury selection before. And, you know, when it came to like passing that paper back and forth in silence and just yeah. like marking it, I was like, this is torture. <laughs> right. Like this has been designed to be as torturous oh, as possible. Yeah. Yes. It's awful. Well, um, I, I never told this story, but I, I uh, was on the uh, Venire panel one time uh, for a civil case. And uh, I was a young lawyer and uh, they, they were doing the voir dire. I was answering the questions and I, I was juror number seven. And the the defense lawyer, I saw him like he uh, kind of turned his page and it kind of flashed to me and I could see a big X across juror number seven. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to make this on this. <laughs> Um, well, so we, we haven't really talked about this, um, Rich, and I don't know how much of involvement in this case you would have had in sort of the damages portion, since I know your co-counsel kind of had been in the case from the beginning with mm -hmm. the family. Yeah. Um, but whether it's for this case or, um, in general, you know, this was a case that you all tried in basically a week in five days. So how, yeah. how do you, uh, how do you like to approach damages or, or how did you approach damages? Yeah. So, and again, I don't remember the specifics here, but, um, because I didn't get to do the opening and I, that was, um, that was a, that was a variable that we had some disagreements with, but, but I did not, but, but, uh, I think I did prevail upon him, uh, to talk and he was a great lawyer. I mean, just a really good dude. And he, uh, he loved this family and that mattered more than anything else because it, it shone throughout the trial and, and it just was great. But with respect to damages, um, I believe that you have to talk about damages in voir dire. Uh, you, I do it in the form of a cause question because, you know, I yeah. want to know, look, if I'm going to, and I, I think I, I don't remember what I asked for $50 million in this case, but you know, you just say, look, members of the jury, no matter what the evidence may be, you know, some people have negative thoughts and feelings about big jury verdicts. And so if, if this is a case where our side's going to be asking for a, a jury verdict, not to exceed $50 million, how many people solely based on that are going to have, you know, we're starting to say, and you can all, yeah. you, know, you can see the wind kind of go out of the group, but you need to know that. And then I talk about it. I subscribe to the belief that, that you need to talk about it in an opening. And I, it doesn't have to be a big deal. I usually save it to the end, but I'm going to tell them, look, which is why, based on all this evidence, at the end of this trial, I'm going to be asking for a verdict not to exceed $50 million. And the not to exceed language, that comes from Harvey Moore. It's based on a lot of focus group language. He's a sociologist. And without going into all the reasons why, I love the way that feels. Uh, it just works for me. So that's the way I do it. And then yeah. again, in closing argument, I, um, you know, I, I go through the liability, but then I do spend a substantial amount of time talking about damages in a wrongful death case. Um, I almost mistried the case, um, because I said you a couple times and I wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wouldn't talk. I mean, I meant it about, you know, if you yeah. are this father, but anyway, I, I did not golden rule it, uh, despite the defense's <laughs> strident objections. But, um, but you know, I, I, I talk about, I, I use a little bit of the trial lawyers college Spence method. And talking about, you know, from the eyes of the father and the eyes of the mother. And throughout trial, one of the tools that I think is important, I don't remember 
who I, I every all these methods I've stolen from other people. I mean, right? I, I made very little of this up, but it's it's a method of of talking about damages when you get the family on the stand or the before and afters. No one talks about their own loss, but everyone talks about everyone else's loss. And so, if you think about it as a circle, you know, we have a circle of friends and family who love this girl and love this family, and you would have one person step into the middle to talk about the effect that the loss had on everyone else in the circle. They step out, someone else steps in. Then they talk about the loss of everyone else in the circle. And they're not talking about their own loss. And what happens is everyone's love and loss is reflected. And to me, it's just a very powerful way of doing damages, whether it's a who ran the red light case or a death case or whatever. And so I'd done that. And then at the end, I stole some of the music from Keith Metnick. And Keith, I think, is is truly one of the greatest linguists. You know, there's a lot of different pieces of a trial. There's the visuals, there's the, the science, there's the strategy, um, all these different pieces, but language is obvious. And self, self is a big part of this, making sure, you know, you're able to deal with your own fears. But Keith, I think, especially when it comes to language, is one of the best. And Keith uses a riff for damages that I absolutely live. I actually called him, I think, in the middle of trial just to kind of run some of it. He's so good at it. And, and Keith uh, has this thing where he starts out by saying, go now, Missouri, we have to talk about damages. And in this case, uh, you are the appraisers. You are the appraisers of damages. And it's your job to come up with a fair appraisal of the losses. And then there's this whole riff, and you've seen it in my closing, but you, you, know, you, you kind of walk through it. And you, you put them in that role that they've got to come up with the loss. And then I would use the trial lawyer's college soliloquy of, you know, I am the father. And here's what it means to me. And I'm the mother and you're hearing it from them. And, um, and again, I don't remember, I, it's been a while since I haven't read the closings I gave it, but, um, but that's kind of at a very high level, right? Uh, yeah. Jury selection, uh, opening middle of the trial, the circle move trialers college and some Keith Metnick club. And then again, anchoring it again and having complete and utter belief, you know, cause I looked at, I also, I also method act on this, not method. That's what I call it. I'm not a method actor. I've never been trained in <laughs> acting, but I think of my kid, right? I've got a daughter. Mm-hmm. And she oh, was yeah. you know 19 at the time. So it's pretty close. And I spent some time the night before really thinking about what that would mean for me and $50 million wouldn't even touch it. And I think oh, yeah. I said that. And, and, and when you come to believe it in your heart and, and, and make it about you and your family, and it makes you see it so clearly. And then when you say it, it's got this authenticity that is undeniable because we've, you know, people sense things, man, the jury's like a super intelligence and they know when you're full of shit and they know when you are just completely speaking the truth from your heart. And so that's kind of how I played it. And then yeah, yeah. asked for $50 million and they gave me 25 and that's usually, they usually cut it in half in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we should say, and so the difference between Florida and Georgia is that uh, in Florida, you're looking at it, the, the loss from the parents perspective, right. uh, you know, their mental pain and suffering from losing their daughter, where in Georgia, yes. we, we look at it for the value of the life of from uh. the perspective of the decedent. So you'd, look at it from Abby's point of view and what yes. she lose. Um, but, um, and you know, what would be fun, go, what go would ahead be fun is to do a first person from her perspective. Right. You know, right. I, I've never, I've never tried a case in Georgia, but that would be, uh, that would be cool to play with. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I did want to ask you, so, you know, in the, on the verdict form, you know, there's a place where they had to put what, what they thought the fault of uh, WCF Florida and then Abby's uh, percentage was, but then, you know, then you get into this question about whether or not she was intoxicated. They found that she wasn't, but I was wondering, I mean, it, it seems to ask again for another division of percentages after um you, you know, you make a decision about uh, whether or not she's uh, under the influence of alcohol. What, what is it about Florida's law that you, you make that, that division of percentages again? Like if you I guess if you find that she's 50% responsible or that the under the influence is 50% responsible, does that mean? Yeah. So if loses? she, okay. if she is found to be, and I don't remember the, uh, gosh, I, I should have thought of that about this before, but it's, it's the alcohol rule. So that if you're okay. intoxicated, and you are uh, 51% at fault, you get nothing. Okay. That, that's what I was kind of thinking, but I was wondering yeah. why they were having yeah. a portion fault twice. I was like, there's yeah. like, they're doing percentages twice here. Right. So uh, where I think where we went at it was they didn't prove, because this, this guy could not say, you know, there wasn't enough forensic evidence for him to give the opinion. And they were making more of a factual argument that I will right. call, look at the, the, the circumstances. And there's no, I mean, everyone in the courtroom knew she'd been drinking, probably had alcohol in her system and had probably bumped cocaine. The family wanted vindication on the intoxication, though. And so that's something we said, look, they just haven't proved it. And it really, you know, but where we accepted the responsibility was on her breaking the rules. Right. Uh, there's no question she broke the rules. And that was where we got into this dispute afterwards. When I sat down, I got, you know, daggers from my co-counsel, <laughs> but, you know, came together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, it seems like Abigail was a really special person. I she saw, was. Um, she was, I think in, maybe it was one of the articles that about your verdict, but that the school had planted a tree for her, sort of a memorial tree for her. It's not, it seems like she really moved a lot of people in, in that community. It was one of those losses that we've all experienced, you know, when a child is lost as a high school student, you know, or a college, everyone in the community knows, I mean, because it's so unnatural. Yeah. And it's just yeah. so unexpected. And, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, an 85 year old pass, but when it's a, when it's a 22 year old, who's obviously not just 20, but, but just a great human being. And that all worked in our favor too. make no mistake. Our clients were amazing. Abby yeah. was amazing. The parents were just lovely. And so obviously that helps. Yeah. That's you know, always a big difference maker. Well, you, you mentioned that, um, that the driver for, um, WCA had to have, uh, uh, PTSD therapy. And I was wondering, did, did he testify live at trial and how did you nope. handle him on cross? Okay. So you just, you just yeah. uh, played his deposition. We, we played his depo and okay. my co-counsel, you know, had, it was just a straight up, you know, depo, but he did ask about the hours, how many hours you'd gone kind of a rote. And, but it was just kind of a sideshow to the, to, to his, his yeah. deposition. So we flipped it. And instead made it about the company. There yeah. was just enough. There was just enough in, in the deposition for us to do that. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, I, I, I you know, when you've got a sympathetic defendant, uh, you know, even though they made a mistake and, you know, but feels bad, you know, how you handle that in front of the jury, because that can be a, a, yeah. a, a difficult task as well. It is make sure you, you know, you're not too aggressive on a person like that. Yeah. And we, you know, I, I, again, I, I want to say, look, we love him too. It's not his fault. He was, yeah. what, what happened here was a foreseeable and predictable consequence of the series of terrible decisions this company made in the pursuit of money. Right. And it was just a matter of time. We knew something like this was going to happen. So, um, yeah, 
Um, I think what was also interesting, part of the play, and I think one of the lessons here for the guys that do a lot of trucking litigation, we do some of that too. We always get into this fight of, you know, the company wants to say, look, they just want to make it about the driver. And they don't want to have the company involved because, oh, it's just vicarious liability. And we don't want any discovery. Yeah. The lesson from this case is if you're doing trucking cases, you can still put them on the stand. You can still make them the villain here without having them on the verdict form because the trucking company wasn't on the verdict form. Well, right. I guess, actually, that's not true. They were on the verdict form, but it was just through this idea of vicarious liability. So, right, right, yeah. But we didn't. There was no discovery done from the you know from the corporation itself. There was no standards of conduct training, all that stuff. It just didn't exist. We had literally maybe a page and a half of questions about how many hours and what you had to do before you had to you got to knock off that day. Yeah, I mean, you did have, uh, did have a great sort of line of questioning that that went down. You know, the the violations of their own policies and procedures, which you know is is yep. always effective. I mean, yeah, what they should have done. My co counsel yeah. did a nice job. They really did. I mean, I I have nothing but great things to say about them. And obviously, you know, I got to come in and 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 help bring it over the line. But the hard work had been done by this firm. Well, well, Rich, this has been uh, been just great. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about uh, Doherty versus WCA of Florida LLC uh, that was in Alachua County, Florida, and was a $25 million wrongful death verdict for the death of Abby uh, Doherty. And um, Rich, I just wanted to ask, is there anything that uh, you want to make sure our audience knows about that trial that we haven't uh, had a chance to talk about? You know, I, I think that the one thing I would say is that that is that trial was a direct result. A lot of the tools that we used in that case were the direct result of the research and, and the collaboration that's been done at at and through the faculty of trial school. So I would want to thank all of them. I've told them all this. Everyone knows. But um, it, it really has been a wonderful experiment and a laboratory of ideas. And so if you're a trial lawyer, if you're new, come and join us. There's a lot of great tools. If you're an experienced trial lawyer, we'd love to have you on our faculty. You know, all of our faculty has had you know, a bunch of multi-million dollar verdicts and are, you know, have, you know, so many years of experience. And so uh, it's been a fun, wonderful, good of the order thing. So if you're not a member, join trialschool.org. We'd love to have you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's just a great, um, a great thing. You know, the more resources that we can, we have, uh, the better is the way I view it. And I mean, our job uh, to represent people who've been injured is is hard enough. So uh, the more help we can get, the better. Um but uh, so, uh, Rich, thank you so much for your time. I want to remind everybody we've been talking to Rich Newsom of the Newsom Mountain Law Firm in Orlando, Florida. And you can look up Rich at NewsomLaw.com. That's N-E-W-S-O-M-E Law.com. Rich, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, guys. I, I've, I've been huge fans of the show for a long time. I, I feel like I'm meeting you guys like meeting celebrities. I mean, no BS. I have loved your podcast. You do such great work. And uh, man, uh, please keep it up. Uh, and Raz, thank you for everything you do, too, making us all look good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah Raz, is, Raz is a pro. So, uh, well, well, thank you so much, Rich. All right, guys. Thanks again. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining. Uh, 
and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.